1: We have so many you know, Facebook friends, we have so many Instagram connections. It's hard to make face-to-face friends, I think, more than it used to be, at least.
0: Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, and today we are talking about resiliency. According to the Webster's Dictionary Online, resilience is the capacity to recover quickly. I think that our role as emergency managers becomes even more important during recovery. We can really have a major impact on recovery just by embracing the ideas of the resilient community. So today, we're going to be talking to Daniel Aldrich about resiliency. So before we get into our interview, oddly enough, Paul from San Luis Obispo shot me an email and was asking, what exactly is a resilient city and how do you become one? And it's kind of a a, a process and it's really from this organization called the Rockefeller Center which was created uh, back in 2013 the idea of what a resilient city is and how to become one the Rockefeller Foundation uh, has 100 cities that they are bringing on board to be resilient cities I know that Los Angeles is one of them uh, Miami is one and they hired what they would call a chief resilient officer and I guess there's been only 37 cities that have come on board, according to the article on the Rockefeller Center, of what are resilient, uh, of other resilient cities. And the way they're looking at it is the role of the cities um, to talk about not only just preparedness in the sense of, say, your uh, you know, natural hazards or whatnot, it comes into climate change and other ideas uh, that talk along those lines of really hardening your cities for those large natural disasters, and how can uh, you do things to plan uh, for them and reduce the, uh, the impact on them. So that's pretty much uh, what a resilient city is. And I think, you know, timely enough that we're talking to Daniel today about the resiliency and what it is and what he thinks it is, and he's done a lot of work on this. Uh, Daniel also um, has done his uh, prep talk as well. And so, well, let's get into the interview. Really excited to have one of the presenters for Pep Talks with us today, and it's Dr. Daniel Aldrich. And he is over in Boston right now uh, talking to us about disaster recovery and the social networks that created a really interesting story that he had uh, regarding his experience with recovery personally. So, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Daniel, tell me a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into this field and then your personal story with what happened to you at Katrina.
1: Yeah, the only reason I got into the field of disasters and resilience was because of our personal experiences there in the summer of 2005. You know, we had moved from Boston down to New Orleans in July, mid-July, and we had six really good weeks down in New Orleans. We had a new house, a new car, my first job, so we actually were buying things for a change, You know, leaving the student lifestyle behind, filling our house up with stuff. We had guests over. We had two young kids at the time, so we envisioned ourselves as being stationed there in New Orleans for a long time. We were there until you know, literally the last week in August. That Monday, the 29th of August, would have been the first day of classes for me at Tulane and for my two sons at their schools there in New Orleans. But that day never really came. We were there over the weekend as our neighbors packed up, and then as we sat in the house not knowing what to do, kind of confused, first-timers in New Orleans, finally one of our neighbors, very late Saturday night, came to our house and said to us, you guys need to go. You've got two young kids. Go to one-story home. It's not safe for you guys to be here. You know, take your car, drive out of the city, and uh, spend a few days out, take a vacation, and come back. So we packed a very small bag. I think we had some toys for the kids, you know, maybe our marriage certificate. Left everything else behind. Books, computers, you know, literally records, everything we had accumulated until that time. Left it all behind. Drove away with everyone else. It was a 14-hour trip. Mm. Houston was normally four hours or so. And uh, we got there Sunday night as the rains had stopped. And then Monday morning, we're all packing up. Everyone in the parking lot has New Orleans license plates. They're all getting ready to go back. And we hear these yells from the, to- the hotel lobby. There's a very small TV there playing. And there's a reporter reporting from downtown New Orleans on Monday morning, and he's saying something like, there's water in the streets, there's water in the streets. Which didn't make any sense to us, right, because the rains had stopped already. Right. And of course, by that point, the, the levees had broken. You know, water was literally pouring in at tens of thousands of gallons a second um, from the 15-foot differential between sea level and Pace New Orleans. Our house filled with water probably in about 10 minutes. And uh, it sat there for about two months. So you know, we had no job, no car, no house, and no obvious things to do for the future. All of our stuff was destroyed. We're pretty mobile. And I had this vision of the future. I had this vision that somehow you know, FEMA would come in and fix everything. I don't know what that would mean exactly, but that was my vision. We didn't have time to activate flood insurance. We had no private insurance. Uh, we applied to FEMA early on, I think within about four days, and they rejected our class They told us that we had insurance. We had to prove we didn't have insurance, which is really hard to do. Mm-hmm. It took about six months, and in that six-month period, the only help we got came not from the government or from the market, but it came from friends, friends of friends, religious institutions, Synagogues, churches, mosques across the country you know—people who knew we had a problem and offered to help. I mean, one lady in, in Georgia sent us a lottery ticket; she just won. A family in Philadelphia opposite their house. I mean, there's really nice people reaching out to us. And I began to think—you know—what if recovery isn't a function of you know the governance of your area? What if it isn't a function of private insurance or the market? What if really, you know, it's about do you have connections to people, and do those connections activate for you during a crisis?
0: So in the past, and when I, when I say the past, I'm talking about you know the, the 1800s and probably into the early 1900s. That's how we used to recover, right? I mean, we had the barn raisins, if you will, when somebody's barn burnt down and everybody get together in the town and, and raise the barn again. Is this kind of what you're, you're envisioning um, as far as the social network of recovery, or is it a little bit more broader than that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's true you said for sure, you know, 100 years ago, you know, when there were major disasters, there are all kinds of them, right? We had the Molasses flood, uh, we had Jonestown flooding, all kinds of major disasters. The federal government until the 1930s and 40s really wasn't involved. Everything was local. So that would mean, for example, it'd be the Red Cross locally, it'd be local institutions, people getting together. So, you know, my vision of recovery and even sort of survival you know, how you get through a disaster is very much about sort of micro local networks. Who do you know? Who lives nearby? What neighbors can help you? And then, reaching out beyond that who do you have who lives beyond the area extra local networks and who do you know in positions of power and authority right we call those bonding bridging and linking ties mm-hmm. What I've tried to do since 2005 is around the world use qualitative and quantitative methods to map these. So I'm not just talking about them in the abstract, You, know, you know, do you have any friends, what happened to you, which is important, but also can we measure those, right? Can we measure community, how weak or strong its ties are before a disaster? Can we predict pretty well what's gonna happen to that area? Will people survive, will they not survive as well, will they bounce back quickly, based not again on their insurance or their money or their education, but rather on their social ties? And I think we've had a pretty cool string of hits so far, uh, in that we've had a lot of research uh, across the world, Japan, India, Israel, North America, Mexico, confirming the argument that individuals who have these ties, both local to neighbors, to friends, people who live nearby, but also to extra local areas, do much better during disaster and recovery than similar people who live in those same areas, but simply don't have the connections or friends.
0: So when you talk about sustainability, what exactly does that mean to you? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I wouldn't look at so much at the question of sustainability.
1: That was a term of art, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, that a lot of the environmental politics people concerned about. But I would say that's less of a concern than the kind of resilience. And then I think a, a bigger concern for communities is: do they have the networks in place? Do they have the trust, the cohesion, uh, the local vision to bounce back from a major disaster, a crisis? Now, it could be here in Boston, you might have heard we've got a lot of snow this year, <laughs> but we also had the Boston Marathon coming up again, right? We've had both ca- mass casualty events here, but also major extreme weather events. That could be Hurricane Sandy in New Orleans, sorry, Hurricane Sandy in New Jersey, in, in New York. Those are the kind of things where sustainability, I think, is a, is a term we've gone beyond. And now the question really is, given the likelihood that most coastal areas in North America, whether Los Angeles, or New York City, be facing, for example, more floods, like we just saw recently, uh, you know, more regular outbreaks of terror, as we're unfortunately seeing right now in Austin. You know, with all these kinds of threats and risks, what's really gonna be critical uh, is the ability of the community to coalesce, to come together, to have the kind of cohesion they need, to have a, an overcoming of collective action, to have joint responses, to have a shared belief in the future.
0: One of the things we talk a lot about in emergency management nowadays is the concept, and you just kind of brought it up, of the concept of resiliency. And, you know, we talk about the resilient city and, and the resilient community. So that being said, how do we create that resiliency?
1: Yeah, this is a great part. So my job I really enjoy because I get a chance not only we study what makes communities resilient, but help to build them in. So a lot of things we can do. Uh, the very basic level is, unfortunately, most of us living in those coastal cities, Austin, New York City, Boston, uh, Los Angeles, we simply don't know our neighbors. Mm-hmm. And we, we estimate roughly one in eight people can name five first and last names of people who live nearby. That's a big problem, right? Because the first responders on a scene aren't people in uniform, typically. They're zero responders. They're neighbors who hear the sound of a gun. They're someone who sees a body on the sidewalk in front of their home. There's someone walking by who hears you scream for help. Uh, zero responders need to be people that you met before because right? someone's knocking on your door and the waters are rising you're not going to trust them to, to give help or get help uh, you need to have those connections beforehand so the first thing that we're doing in these urban areas is trying to build connections trying to build sense of trust now, the next level up for individual trust then um, is the neighborhood connection. Can we build a community not just the people who live next door but people who live a block away or two blocks away? All kinds of stuff that we do in San Francisco right now has the Fest program. They'll give you $5,000 at least once a year to hold a party in your neighborhood. They'll help you get the permits for live music. They'll get you the bounce house for the kids. Even help you drag your furniture into the street to have the party. But the goal is very simple. Again, San Francisco, large urban area, a lot of population change all the time. We need to get to know the neighbors. So those are some easy things that we can do. Last we'll c- city Planning and urban planning make a difference. Uh, how the houses, condos, apartments, and parks are laid out make a big difference in building connections. Individuals who don't see each other, people who haven't worked together before or met before, really hard to build those social ties. So, long driveways, for example, garage doors, usually a very bad sign for social ties. On street parking, porches, third places, coffee shops, parks, those are good signs in urban spaces to build these kinds of connections. Uh, Beyond those relatively passive programs, glasses can do things like focus group processes where we have people get together. We encourage them to come to zoning groups, PTA meetings, anything that will get them out of the house and meeting people and seeing they have other people who also care about the community. We have community currency programs where individuals uh, literally will be rewarded for volunteering for an hour. So for example, in, uh, in Ithaca, New York, if you volunteer for an hour, you'll get five Ithaca dollars. That money can't be spent at McDonald's or um, you know a big, some big store. It can only be spent at local mom and pop stores, farmers markets, barbershops. As we encourage you to volunteer, those mom and pop stores get the money and they spend it locally as well, <laughs> right? That's a great virtuous cycle. And finally, we also think about using social networks more effectively. Most of us nowadays have cell phones. Most of us are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And we know those platforms are rolling out all kinds of new ways to stay connected during disaster. Beyond Facebook's platform, for example, of check-in, right, where you can check-in safe during a major disaster, Rolling so we're out a new program we help to work with, which helps connect individuals who need materials, diapers, water, food, medical supplies, to individuals who have those supplies. So these are all ways we can actively build and create these kinds of connections.
0: So one of the things I've noticed, too, is that, especially when you talk about like the large-scale disaster, you kind of experience this yourself, that you're waiting for the federal government to come in and not really understanding what the role of the federal government is compared to what the local government is. How can we get local governments to be more involved with programs like what you're talking about? Because, I mean, obviously, I think most people know now that the FEMA is not coming in on the white horse and with a bunch of troops and saving people. It's really the local governments that's doing this. FEMA's kind of coming in the back end and sort of paying for things if they can. How do we get local government to be more involved with the resilient programs that you're speaking about? Yeah, this is a real big challenge. Uh, I think the simple reality
1: is in all of the work that we've done, surveys over time and over space in North America, most North Americans have a very wrong vision of, first of all, what's going to happen, that is to say, who's involved in the disaster process and what FEMA does. Uh, most of them think FEMA puts on gloves and a hard hat and help rebuild their home. Uh, most North Americans really don't understand the complexity of the process. That FEMA's job really is to cut a check, right, mm-hmm. after they've already gone through private insurance, for example, or applied to the Small Business Administration for a loan for the for their business. So it's, it's a pretty, it's a challenging job to get that idea across. Um, what we've seen though, especially for example in New Orleans, uh, in New Jersey, after Hurricane Sandy, is some communities didn't need to hear these lessons about civics or how the government works. They told us our job is to be here and to be in homes that are fixed. And we don't care if it's we who do it or the government who does it, we're going to get it fixed. And literally, some of these communities self-organized, raised their own funds, got their own contractors well before any of the official things were in place. I remember one story when I was in New Orleans of Village de lest mostly Vietnamese and Vietnamese-American community in the northeast part of the community uh, near the Chef Mentor Landfill, they activated really early, within about two and a half months of Hurricane Katrina, when most of us were still in shock. They came back as a group of 500 people or so, convinced the local power utilities to put power back on in their community, built their own schools, they built their own urban garden, they built their own medical center. Mm. Um, they really got the message early. They didn't need any kind of educational campaign. And we see that as a tremendous strength, right? When we have the ability of communities um, to think before anyone else gets there, This is our job. You know, whatever happens with federal government or assistance from FEMA or whatever, it's our job to be connected. It's our job to be there. That's hard. Um, I think communities, I saw Boco Strong, Boulder, Colorado. um, They had a great program after their floods in 2013. They also recognize that they can sit around and wait for some kind of federal or even regional government assistance but they could organize themselves. And again, going through the disaster, seeing the strength of the social ties, almost all the work that they've done since then has been about building community coherence. They have an annual award ceremony. They have high school students writing essays about it. They have volunteer hours being put in. They even have city government officials working with them. So this is a really strong partnership, right? When the community has a vision of the future, um, that's one that everyone shares. And they really tell elected officials, this is what we want to do, right? We don't want to be passive waiting for some assistance, waiting for some vision of the outsiders. We want to have our own recovery plan. That's a much, much more strong push into recovery than anything else we can do.
0: Administrator Long, uh, in my interview with him a couple weeks ago, was talking about really revamping the Citizen Corps program and kind of looking at a different way of doing Citizen Corps, more along the lines of the whole civil defense way it used to be back in the 50s and the 60s. Do you think that's something that would go in the concept of the neighborhood resiliency programs? Or, I mean, how do you think we could envision something like that that would really get the neighborhoods again involved with Just overall resiliency, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great idea. I mean, again, the, the challenge is following, first of all, a lot of those government programs, whether it's Teach for America or City Corps or this idea of resilience Corps, they're short-term, right? Individuals come in for a year or two. What we want is individuals who live in these communities, these vulnerable areas. Again, these are typically coastal cities we're talking about here. So it's going to be Los Angeles. It's going to be San Francisco. It's, it's going to be the Gulf Coast, Louisiana. It's going to be, you know, North Carolina. We, you know, what we want is we want people who live in those cities, not just work in them, but live in them, to have a vision, have a, have a, a shared uh, understanding of community and working together. I think it'd be great to have a national core of volunteers to go around. What we find time and time again is that volunteers do great work, but they're always time limited, right? They're never there forever. There's Mm -hmm. no volunteer who comes in after a disaster and typically moves there. Maybe one in a hundred do that. And what we want is the the strong spirit to be bottom up and not just the top-down one. So if the government can encourage people, right, and there are lots of ways to do this. You know, we have all kinds of plans, for example, that encourage you to go to medical school, but only if you stay in a rural community where you come from. When I was in North Carolina, this was the case. If you were willing to be a doctor, for example, in a vulnerable community in North Carolina, we'd help pay for your medical school tuition. So same here, too. I would say the strongest program would be one that would encourage people, look, we're happy to have you volunteer. That's great to have you have a job for two or three years, but we're going to reward individuals, right, who take their skills, take their volunteer and their enthusiasm into communities that are definitely vulnerable to these kind of long-term changes.
0: So let's talk about the neighborhood fest a little bit. So you, you kind of mentioned that that San Francisco does this. How could another city or neighborhood replicate what San Francisco is doing? Is there something that that you can grab onto to look at this, or is you know? Yeah, I mean, it, lots of things. You know, first of all, San Francisco,
1: like a few other cities, have this chief resilience officer. Right? This is the Rockefeller Foundation program where around 100 cities around the world have received funding to have someone in place. Boston has one. Dr. Tia Martin was our, our chief resilience officer here. You know, there's someone working with in New York City. Um, you know, these are individuals whose whole job is thinking through what are the kind of risks and challenges our city faces and how do we work across the silos? So not just transportation or electricity or housing or food, but across all these different areas. How do we ensure we have these networks, these strong systems in place? You know, so what San Francisco has done really well is they recognize they're in a vulnerable spot. That's the first thing, right? Just recognizing there's vulnerability in your city. Now, some communities don't want to use the word sea, uh, sea rise, for example, from global climate change. Some cities don't want to talk about about terrorism, whatever they can do at the moment, right? To begin with a recognition of the challenges they face, that's a good start. The next stage is then embedding that recognition of the th- of the threat of the risk into what they do not just making it one person's problem to think about what happens when Boston has you know 15 feet of snow in a week, or what happens when a hurricane destroys the first level of every hospital along the New Jersey shore, but rather, what can we do to build recognition across areas, across public and private sectors? And this is what San Francisco does pretty well. They're getting, for example, local CEOs on board, so firms that work there, tech firms, you know, local small and small businesses, they're getting them all recognizing they have a massive threat from a seismic fault in the future. There will be an earthquake in San Francisco in the future. Mm-hmm. We all should be on board. Once you begin with that recognition, then it's easier to tell your boss, we as a firm, we as an institution, we as a school, this needs to be in our radar. In the same way that we're worried about gunmen coming to school, God forbid, or worried about, you know, a, a, a competitor, a rival, stealing intellectual property, we need to be thinking about how do we challenge, deal with this kind of risk. San Francisco did that really well. And then they said, we want to set aside funds, again, not for the after-the-fact point, right, not for just typical disaster fire training, but for citizens to be involved as well. That once you recognize citizens are a linchpin in the process, then you set aside funds for them, right? So typically we have money for first responders, money for fire, for uh, everything else. But what we need to have is citizens as part of the planning stage. And the response stage well before we actually have that disaster.
0: That's a pretty cool uh, way of looking at things, and I'm really happy that San Francisco is doing that. There's a program that. I was involved with a few years ago and it was called Neighbor for Neighbor and it was the idea of taking sort of like um, your uh, neighborhood watch type of thing but making it more just the neighborhood watch with crime and making it like a disaster preparedness neighborhood. Is that something like what the uh, what San Francisco is doing or is it a little bit more robust than that?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a start, right? I mean, they have a great, by the way, if you're interested, they have a great website so that citizen groups both in San Francisco but around the country can download their documents. They have a fantastic set of newsletters like Bay, the Bayview Resilience Guide and these are ways that people like Dan Holmsey in San Francisco have worked to think through, how do we make sure each neighborhood has its own unique plan to dealing with the challenges they're going to have, right? And the challenge you might have right now might be something like housing, right? Affordable housing. Uh, It might be crime. Uh, It could be, on top of those things, resilience to this long-term threat of an earthquake. So, you know, what they've done is, for each neighborhood, building on this idea of funding for and support for bottom-up resident-based approaches. They've had each neighborhood build their own resilience plan. And again, that forces people in the community to think through, this is not just the government's problem. The local government, the regional government, the federal government, this is our problem. And I think this is the challenge we have in 2018. Many of us live lives that are very, very disconnected from a broader recognition of what's going on. You know, we drive to our workplace in our car, we park in our driveway, and we drink our coffee. It's hard for us to think, you know, what if tomorrow we lost power for a week? You know, what if I couldn't get on the internet anymore, right, to use my GPS? Um, what if a neighbor who needs dialysis couldn't get to a hospital anymore? You know, how would I help someone, for example, uh, who can't walk upstairs on the 14th floor and needs medicine? Right? These are the kind of challenges, fortunately, most of us in our society don't deal with. So this is, the, pro- this is the, the, the first stage, a recognition of the likelihood of a problem happening and building that into daily life. You know, we can build social connections that have nothing to do right now with a disaster. will be tremendously powerful if that disaster comes. I can become friends with the neighbor just because they're my neighbors, not because I need to have them if I have a heart attack. I do have the heart attack, it's good to have the neighbors, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, part of the planning, I think San Francisco does really well, is they build these resilience plans not to some far-fetched future. You know, in 2050, there's an earthquake, but what do we need right now? You know, do we need leadership? Do we need youth involved? Do we need parents who can watch kids in a group? Do we need more park space? Do we need, you know, this old, uh, decrepit building torn down so it's safer? Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of local concerns that activate people who are oftentimes too absorbed in their own lives to think more broadly about what does the community need right now and in the future.
0: So what I do in my lecture sometimes, you know, especially when I'm working with like the citizen the CERT programs, and um, I will uh, I'll tell them, hey, at the end of the day, make a friend, know know your neighbor, and this is sort of what is being done here in San Francisco. It sounds like is that how I'm reading this? Yeah, I th- I think that's that's the base part,
1: but then they go and say, okay, so make those neighbor friends, but then have a series of meetings, right, on a monthly basis, where you and forty neighbors sit down across ra- racial, ethnic, class lines talk about what are the kind of challenges and threats we see here, right? With someone from the city government there, from the police department there, from the fire department there, people are listening to you as you're talking about this. I saw the same model, by the way, in the Wellington Regional Management Organization, WREMO, in New Zealand, right? They had the exact same idea, mm-hmm. where their first job isn't to tell citizens what to do, it's to listen. So Remo sends about half of its staff out every week to local organizations, PTAs, mosques, synagogues, churches, schools, bachi ball clubs, opera festivals. They send in their to listen. And they're, they're long enough and often enough citizens trust them to listen and to be on their side. Mm. So the problem with oftentimes disasters is our messages of doom and gloom. No one wants to hear, you should get three days of food and water ready because we could be all dead tomorrow. That's really not a popular message. Right? <laughs> but if you told them, right, here we are, we're listening, you know, what are you doing in your organization? What does your boxy ball club, club do? Right? How do you bring people into your opera club? How are you getting members in Armenian Friendship Society? And you're there for weekly meetings. When the disaster comes and they know who you are, there's someone whose information will be trusted. Right? Mm. This is a whole part of the capital. Information from sources that are trusted is acted upon. If you called me tomorrow and said, hey Daniel, by the way, you know, your house is in a floodplain," I didn't know you from before, we've never met, you're not working for FEMA, your information isn't gonna make me move, right? But if someone from FEMA who I'd met before at a flood zone workshop said, hey Daniel, I want you to know that your house in Brighton is in a flood I'd probably listen pretty closely, right? And that's part of the success of these groups, whether it's Boko Strong, whether it's San Francisco, whether it's Wellington, New Zealand, they're building trust in the community well before the next disaster happens, right? So it's not just building a friend, but it's building continuous connection. It's building belief and trust that you have people listening to you, so those individuals will be there, right, to, to take your advice, to listen to you should that disaster come.
0: Let's take a quick break here for a second. And then when we come back, I want to explore the idea of creating social networks and how does that look?
1: The modern emergency manager wears a lot of hats, so how do you also fit in the needs of your exercise program? It is a matter of time. And how much is your time worth? A lot. TTX Vault is the answer to getting some of that time back. We offer pre-assembled tabletops, drills, and functional exercises spanning NIMS, hospitals and healthcare, special operations, and more, all coming from the archives of the Blue Cell. Get a jump start on the exercise process and visit us today at www.ttxvault.com. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high tech, yet simple to use mobile based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, We believe in the power of people.
0: Hey guys, welcome back. and Thank you for uh, listening to the sponsors. And without them, we couldn't do what we're doing. And I'm here uh, talking with Daniel, talking about uh, social networks, building resiliency in communities and and what that looks like. And so social networks. So you talk in your speech on prep talks about creating social networks. How does somebody go about in doing that? I mean, you just start knocking on doors and saying, hi, I'm Todd and I live in your neighborhood and what's your name? Or uh, how do you propose that? Yeah, I mean, this is hard for us. It's funny. We have so many, you know, Facebook
1: friends. We have so many Instagram connections. It's hard to make face-to-face friends, I think, more than it used to be, at least. Um, you know, the, the first thing some communities do, and this happens in Japan all the time, is if someone new moves in, you have a, a, community, a, a, a committee that meets them and says, you know, here's a cake or here's some instructions. Here's the school neighborhood. You know, here's, here the schools nearby. You know, We've got like, two kids. How many kids do you have? I mean, literally the first thing that people would do in Japan is meet new people. Uh, and say hello, uh, but the, pro- the challenge now is there's so many new move-ins, right, and so many communities have you know short-term leases or even less than half-year leases in some of the communities in Boston that it's hard to do that. But yeah, the first stage would simply be getting to know neighbors, We're leaving one's comfort zone, uh, turning off the TV set, putting the phone down, and going physically to meetings never mind. Now, the challenge is, of course, a lot of demands in our time, right? Many of us work one or two jobs, we've got families, we have shows we like to watch, but again, if this is something that's important to us, if we really think these social ties will play a role in a disaster, you cannot not on someone's door after a Katrina or after a flood, and say, "Hi, I'm Ta- I'm Todd. <laughs> can I can I borrow some salt, Right? Not the time to make friends. Right? People okay. are really. And you know, one of my colleagues, Rob Olshansky, calls this compressed. Time right after there's a disaster after there's a crisis, everything is sped up right. So your sense of urgency is really high, and probably making new friends is not among the top ten things you need to do. You know, getting a contractor to your house to fix the flood damage is there. Getting uh, you know the insurance inspector over is there. Making sure your kids have a place to go to school is there. Getting food or getting gasoline is there. But you know, making friends is not. So if you haven't built those connections, if you haven't built those ties, by the time that disaster strikes, it's really too late to do it afterwards. One of my friends here in FEMA always says, you know, you can't exchange business cards after the disaster, you have to be forced. So yeah, that's the first stage I think is is getting to knock on doors. But again, the next stage would be, and this is maybe not for everybody, there are a lot of meetings that take place already that we don't go to, right? Uh, Every city that I know of has zoning meetings. Mm -hmm. Every city that I know of has Aldermen or city council meetings. Every city that I know of has all kinds of political meetings. Libraries have talks all the time. Right? Those are the kind of meetings and opportunities to make friends and make connections that we wouldn't normally meet. And this is what we call the bridging ties that we may not might, might have nearby. So let's say, uh, who knows? I'm an immigrant from Ireland I just got here. I've got no new friends, but I go to a church nearby, a Catholic church, and maybe the people there from Afghanistan, the people there from Britain, the people there from America. Right? That church is the is the bridge between us. Uh, so too with these kind of meetings. Again, uh, a PCA group, a zoning group. These are locally based organizations talking about local issues. So rather than talking about, you know, what's the national debt this year? You know, how much money should we spend on, on defense? Those are pretty hard issues for the average citizen. But how about this one? Should we build more high density housing in your backyard? Do you want to have another road going past your home? Um, when can construction start in the morning? Uh, you know, how many hours of school should kids attend? Those are questions you might care about. Those affect your quality of life. So I think that the next stage beyond just knocking on doors is recognizing getting involved in those meetings gives you a chance to have your voice heard but also builds those connections. Maybe you'll meet the mayor meet the aldermen meet the town council members we call that linking social capital you've got a chance to meet people in power and authority Um, so again maybe all of us won't meet the mayor but maybe you know his assistant or her assistant maybe we all meet the council members but we'll meet other people who also have similar concerns and this is how movements begin right? whether it's the the anti-gun movement right now in North America the Million Mom March the civil rights movements. all these movements began at meetings had nothing to do with them but grew into something bigger than they were right? so that's the chance for us to move beyond just knocking on doors to actually get involved in broader institutions institutions In the places that we live,
0: so almost like the uh, old, uh, uh, not the welcome wagon, but yeah, I think it's the welcome wagon. Like you always see, like the lady bringing the cherry pie to the to the neighbor when they moved in. That's a it's kind of a cool concept that we should bring back, huh? That's
1: right, exactly.
0: So on your prep talk, you talked a little story um, about the tsunami and then the uh, Fukushima reactor meltdown in Japan, and you talked about two different communities that had completely different. Uh, recovery and uh, response, I guess, experiences during that time. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what your research found why there was that difference between those two communities?
1: Yeah, so we've been really lucky. Um, We've been working in Japan since 2011 when the triple disasters happened there. That was the massive offshore earthquake, the 9.0 magnitude earthquake, followed by huge tsunamis, 65 feet in some cases, and unfortunately, nuclear meltdowns. So they had three Major disasters at the same time. So imagine how much you know craziness that would be for any society around the world. Uh, 18,500 people were killed there, and we were lucky because we've been able to track in a number of communities the recovery and survival processes. And one of the communities we've been working in is called Futaba, and they're not even 20. 20- 20 miles away from the nuclear power plant and we're closer to 15 actually and they were evacuated within a few days of those meltdowns back in March of 2011 and we wanted to know, you know these people who have been moved so many times right? so first 1st first you're living in your home and there's a siren that goes off and your cell phone rings and a message comes on and says you've got two hours to evacuate take one bag right? so you grab everything that matters to you maybe you get some pictures or your phone or whatever it is your your dog and you literally get in the bus and you're out of there and you may not go back again they're moved to one shelter typically a school or a city hall then they're there for a day or two sleeping on the floor, they moved into a temporary shelter, like a FEMA trailer, for a few months. And if they're very lucky, and this has not yet happened for many people, if they're very lucky, seven years later, they might be living in permanent housing, but <laughs> might not. We had around 40,000 people still not living in permanent housing now, wow. seven years later. So imagine the stress on them, right? All the kind of stresses that they face. Well, first of all, you know that you and your family, if you, if you had kids or you by yourself, were probably exposed to some degree of radiation. Was it a small amount, a large amount? We didn't know because at the time, there were no radiation sensors for the civilians living nearby. So we don't know what their exposure. We can estimate it, right? We can guesstimate it. We can see how much water and food they drank from nearby and internal dosage. We can get error levels for external dosage. We can just estimate that. But we don't know, right, what it's going to do. Maybe there'll be no impact on their health. Maybe in 20 years, they will Will be something, so that's one, one concern. Second concern is if you owned a home in Fukushima, you may never go home again, right? That home could be, for the rest of your life, unable to be accessed. So you have a second mortgage in a home or first mortgage, you're still paying in most cases, uh, and guess what? You can't go back there. So you're living in a temporary shelter, so that that's up in the air. You had a job before you were evacuated. That job's been gone now for seven years. Um, so you have all these simultaneous stressors on a population. And we wanted to know you know, what's going to help you. First of all, what, what are they worried about? How is their stress level? And then we wanted to see what can reduce that tremendous stress and anxiety that you may not be feeling? And again, I'm sure you can imagine just going through the mental exercise, if you've ever seen any nuclear war movie, right, the day after or whatever else it's gonna be, the kind of stresses you might feel about radiation, right, which is a real dread risk for most of us. Right. So the first thing was we found that the levels of anxiety and stress among people who fled from right nearby, were tremendous, four to five times the levels of stress the average person in Japan has been feeling since 2011. And these were so surprising, these levels of stress. You know, we measured them on a scale basically from 0 to 24. Uh, The average person in Japan is around a 3. The average person in this community is around a 12. Hmm. Uh, And that's really high. Um, There can be PTSD levels, hard to function on a daily basis, I mean, all kinds of levels of of stress there. So we thought we might get it wrong. So we went back and did it a second time, this time looking at communities that had faced only, and I say only in quotes, only the earthquake and the tsunami, but not the nuclear meltdowns as well. And the amazing thing was, people who went through the nuclear uh, meltdowns still had far higher stresses than individuals who been through the earthquake and the tsunami but no radiation exposure Hmm. so there's something about the dread risk of radiation exposure that just really goes off the charts there that was the first part of the research then we wanted to figure out what can lower this right what factors in our lives our communities can make us feel less anxiety less stress about the future less worry right because you're thinking all the time am I going to get cancer am I am I going to get a job am I going to get my house back so at first we tried the most obvious things we thought would be health and wealth we figured if individuals were physically healthy, and uh, they left the area you know, intact, they didn't have any injuries, no heart conditions or broken limbs or anything else, uh, maybe they would do better than individuals who had worse health. And we also figured that maybe wealth would make a difference for all kinds of reasons, right? You had a lot of money, maybe you had private insurance, to cover your job loss. Or maybe you have the money to get a second house. Maybe you have the money to hire a therapist. Or we had all kinds of stories that we told ourselves. Uh, the, the amazing thing was neither health nor wealth made a difference, <laughs> meaning you could be very, very healthy and very, very rich the levels of stress and anxiety that you would feel would be the same as someone who was poor and had relatively bad health. That was kind of depressing, honestly, for us <laughs> as researchers to find that. But the good news, and this is really why, where I'm, I'm really proud of our team, is that we found there was a measurable way to reduce stress, that was through social ties. Individuals from Futaba who had friends and connections that they knew, they kept in touch with as they were moved time and time again, an average of around five moves over those seven years, those individuals had measurably lower levels of stress on the 0 to 24 scale, which is great news, right? Because that means, again, we often might think about maybe our job as disaster managers is building back buildings better, or our job is building stronger seawalls, or our job is somehow evacuating people quickly. That could be one perspective, but this research, again, underlies a different approach. Maybe our job in disasters is to help encourage social ties Hmm to maintain those ties and then to help people keep them up, even under tremendous stress and evacuation. I remember, we mentioned before, Village de Lest, right, the Vietnamese community in New Orleans, even in the evacuation shelters in Houston and Baton Rouge, that community kept in touch. They had a Vietnamese language radio program they put on. They had flyers they put out, hand-to-hand, they handed them out. They made phone calls to each other in the shelters. So same, too, here with this Futaba community in Japan. Those people who had that kind of support as they're going through stress, they felt something was bigger than them, right? They felt. They weren't in this alone. And I think, honestly, from going through this myself, going through the Katrina, that's a big, big reassurance. Even if you don't know what's going to happen with leukemia or with your job, with your house, just knowing there are people around you, going through the same stresses really makes you feel a little more at ease.
0: Is that why you think the Amish really do well in disaster?
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, funny, I spent about 10 days with the Amish in Ohio, the Old Order Amish their settings so what they do. And yeah, you know, several things. First of all, you know, these communities are very tight knit, right? They share ethnicity, they share a history and a language. They speak high Dutch. Oftentimes in English is a second language. They've gone to the same schools. Um, they do the same kind of jobs. They don't have a lot of internet access. They have newspapers only. So they, they have a coherent community vision and a shared culture. Again, same thing I think with the Vietnamese community in New Orleans, again a shared culture. Same thing with these Fotaba friends, right? They went through the same process together. they would been living in the same town yeah. and for generations before they were evacuated. So yeah, I think the Amish, like the Vietnamese, like the Japanese and Futaba, those communities that share linguistic, ethnic, racial, cultural backgrounds, they have something in common that makes them feel sort of cohesive. I think that's a big boon during a crisis.
0: Do you think small towns do better than cities when it comes to crisis?
1: You know, I used to have that perspective. Right? I think I used to believe that somehow we just envisioned the idea that rural communities are the ones who are, you know, tight-knit and they work together. The reality was, at least from our work on both North America and Japan, there's, a, there's actually some really huge differences, even in the same communities that are rural or urban. So, you know, think about New York City or Boston, right? Boston's really small, right? We have maybe a million and something inhabitants. You know, Manhattan's maybe eight million plus right nearby. But you, you don't live in Boston or you don't live in New York. You live in a neighborhood in those communities. Yeah. Right, And depending on who lives there with you, maybe your neighbors are there for six months, or for a year, or for 50 or 60 years, right? Maybe your, your neighbors are people who open their doors, they live right next door to you, you share a porch, you share a dining room, you share a living room. Or maybe you never see them because they live, you know, at the end of a long driveway with a, with a garage door. So we found it, it's not really urban versus rural that predicts social ties well. Each community is different, right? Some communities have worked together on problems in the past. We saw this in Japan a lot. Communities that have worked together on other problems, environmental problems. Um, harassment problems from other communities. The Vietnamese community came over literally as boat people from Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s, right? A shared experience as a group. That was a bigger difference. I mean, their community in New Orleans was relatively rural compared to downtown New Orleans, mm-hmm. but again, incredibly strong ties. Again, not because they're rural, but because they chose to live together. I think this is part of the idea. We're seeing all this all the time now. Deliberate or planned communities, right? Uh, or, or individuals who think through, who do you want to live near? What should we do as a group? One of my friends lives in Carbo, North Carolina. They have a, a dining how they, they share the duties in people cook together they eat together they have private living quarters right they sleep by themselves but they play together they got a movie theater together they have a library right those kind of shared spaces create wherever you are a cohesion of trust and intimacy that you cannot get right in normal daily modern life wherever you are whether it's in a big house in a in a small community or a small condo in a, in a large community it's much more about the neighborhood than it is about rural versus, rural versus urban
0: would say a community like staten island which is Tends to be a pretty tight-knit community. Would they fare better than, say, I don't know, Jamaica, Queens? You know, which seems to.
1: I mean, I have to see. I mean, this this is the cool thing, and that's why I like like, living and working in North America. We have really good data, right, on this kind of question. We have uh, both census data. We have ESRI data. We have data on the number of community organizations, on the number of mosques, synagogues, churches, and the number of local volunteer groups. We have volunteer data on the number of blood drives in the area, the number of people who vote. So we actually can measure that question. That's a good thing. I have to guess. I don't know right now, but we could find out, right, by measuring quantitatively, which of these communities has more of these institutions, more involvement, more volunteerism? We could even do t- surveys as well. is what we, our, our group does in Northeastern. Our students and our faculty often do surveys of communities about trust. Simple questions. How much do you trust your neighbor not to take advantage of you? Do you know your, your local neighbors? How often do you leave your home? How often do you play card games together? How often do you go out for walks? Uh, do your kids play with neighborhood kids? Do your kids bust someplace else? How long is your commute? There's a, a series of questions we can ask to get at this question, which is, how connected are we wherever we live?
0: Wow, that's actually kind of cool. And and by the way, just for officially, I just picked those two neighborhoods out of New York City just off the top of my head. There's no, there's no no reason behind that question or, or behind those two neighborhoods. So yeah, that's kind of cool that you can actually bring the data down to that level because you're right. I mean, just thinking of it and just just off the top of my head that you do know you do see those communities that, that do like the neighborhood um, events. Uh, I was trying to think of like, you know, the San Luis Obispo, for instance, has a really great farmer's market that they do every Thursday. And it's a huge event and people from all over the place go there. And it seems to be one of those things that the community really embraces, you know, and I think things like that, as an example, um, bring communities together, you you know, and uh, because it's a college town. uh, So a lot of the college kids go there and, and get their stuff. And it's also, it's a big wine area, so a lot of people who like wine go there to get to do their stuff. So it's kind of a really way to bring both sides of those communities together. So do things like that really work or is that just kind of me thinking anecdotally speaking?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, any kind of thing, whether it's a farmer's market that meets regularly, or whether it's a CSO that puts farmers in contact with people who eat the stuff in the cities, you know, whether it's a local cleanup day at a park, whether it's a call for volunteers for a local movie theater that's shutting down, you know, whether it's a local church organization, mosque, synagogue that's trying to get new members involved. You know, what we're looking for is not based on any one religion or any one organization. What we want is people who feel they're part of a community. And this is a simple question we can ask too, which is to what degree do you feel where you are is home? How comfortable are you there? Right. If you think your neighbors don't like you because you wear something on your head, whether it's a turban or a yarmulke or a veil, right? Then probably it's not gonna be your home for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. If you feel if you got in trouble, your neighbors would come, you know, kick on the door and, and rescue you from that bear attacking you or whatever. Um, or, if, or they would notice if people people breaking into your home. Right. So we know for example, social capital, these ideas or these social ties aren't just about disasters. They're also about things like economics, crime, right, happiness. You know, individuals who live, for example, in communities that are tighter knit, they simply live longer. Not because they run more or whatever else, it's because people around them can help them if there's a problem, whether it's cardiac arrest, maybe they they copy the behavior of people who are healthier, right? the guys who are not eating the triple-decker sandwiches but the guys taking the walks with their wives, right? (laughs) Right. Those kind of communities really do better for individuals, even shut-in individuals, we saw this in Japan as well. Individuals who themselves aren't that outgoing but live in communities that do have these kind of ties. Whatever form they take, those individuals live longer and live better. Same thing with crime, right? We know that, that, that crime is a big function of who knows who in the community. If you don't know anyone right now, right? If you don't know who your neighbors are, you can't recognize who doesn't belong there, right? And we had a, a, a colleague a long time ago, Oscar Newman, writing about this. He said, you know, the best defense against crime is not police officers with the guns. It's neighbors and people who care about their, 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 their homes and their gardens, right? If you see someone you know, opening a window in your neighbor's house and you don't recognize them, you don't ask them who they are. For example, recently you saw someone who put putting a package on a, on a front lawn, right, and didn't ask them who they were. Then that's our responsibility. That's our choice as people who live there, right? We can make that choice to defend our lands, not with guns, but with attention and with care, mm-hmm. right? Paying attention to who walks nearby, who goes nearby. With our kids, we live in Boston. Our kids play out in the back backyard, we actually have a backyard that's Miss misnomer in the parking lot of our, of our condo. <laughs> our kids play together with other kids nearby and the adults watch out for them. If the car's coming too fast, they'll slow them down, right? So they feel responsibility to the kids. So that's, that's up to us. I think, you know, building those ties, whatever form they're going to take, means that we're going beyond just living my life by myself with my screens, to, I care about my house, I care about my kids, my neighborhood, my community, I want things to go well. And again, it doesn't have to be a doom and gloom message, right? Build friendships against the next crisis. It could be, build friendships because you'll live longer. Build friendships because the lower crime neighborhood. Build friendships because it'll make you happier, right? To have individuals who know you and and care about you.
0: So, just kind of wrapping us up here real quick, because we're coming close to the end of our time. So, in general, what you're seeing here is that the resilient community is more than just doing in in the case of like California, you know, retrofitting your homes for earthquakes or in Louisiana, building homes up on stilts to, so the water could go underneath it for the next time it floods. It's more about building community, building trust amongst your, your, your neighbors and, and really just the, the old fashioned for lack of a better term, old fashioned I'm using is the old fashioned making friends and, and, and meeting neighbors. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, I mean even more broadly, think about how we spend our money, right, in disasters, right? Think about what most of our spending goes toward. Ninety seven percent of the money we have goes toward physical infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Berms, levy, army corps of engineers work, hospitals on stilts, raising the front levels of houses in New Jersey or taking back land, buying back homes. The reality is those are important stages. Don't get me wrong, infrastructure is important. But social infrastructure, the ties that bind us together, the feelings of cooperation and trust, the feelings of wanting to belong, that defines the community's success in the long term. So all these coastal communities and cities around North America, around the world, will be facing a crisis in the next few years, right? And we can't buy back all the land, we can't raise every home, right? right. What, what right. the local, federal, and national, and, and local, re- regional governments can do, though, is take a little bit of that money that's going right now to physical infrastructure and encourage NGOs, nonprofit organizations, churches, mosques, synagogues, schools, bachiba clubs, or many associations, like San Francisco is doing, like Wellington is doing, like Boko Strong is doing, these communities, these successful communities are activating ties before the next shock comes, right? And they're not just building you know, fireproof homes made of concrete, what they're doing is building networks they can help warn people who can't get out of their house in time. They're going to carry that friend out on a bicycle or a car before the fire hits their home. They're going to warn them via text message or a knock on the door that there's a bear in the community. They're going to come offer their kids help if they see their parents are struggling. Those are the moments that are going to build the community. Not having a new, you know, retaining wall around Boston or some kind of, you know, anti seismic uh, foundations for buildings in San Francisco. Those are important, but we can't do that for every single building, for every single structure. We also don't know what threats we're going to face, right? Right now in 2018, we might have threats in the future we can't see right now. And that's the huge benefit from investing in social ties. These are not just about one disaster type, right? It's not about, you know, if there's a terror attack, social ties help. If there's a fire, social ties help. Any kind of crisis, a minor thing happens, right? Imagine, you leave your phone a- a- at a friend's house, um, your-, your wallet gets stolen, when you're abroad, all these moments of panic and crisis at the individual level, social ties matter then too. And think of, on a broader scale as well, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, you know, when the community needs help, those ties activate as well, whatever kind of risks they have. So I would say the goal here would be most of our spending has been on physical infrastructure. Roads, dams, raising houses, water, you know, right now the big thing is floating houses in, in New Orleans, floating houses. Great, so that's one, that's one way of doing with it, right? Living in a boat. Alternatively, right, we could build a society that whatever damage is done to physical infrastructure, they'll want to come back and rebuild. Whatever challenges there are, they'll want to help each other in that process and they'll work together co- cooperatively. They'll share a contractor, they'll sell time together. Right? So one approach is the old, old school way build more infrastructure, build it back bigger, build it back stronger. That's great. But at the same time, take at least some of that effort and put it into these kind of social infrastructure.
0: That's awesome. If people are interested in getting a hold of you or reading your research, and, and obviously we'll share the, the prep talk, talk that you did, how can we get a hold of you?
1: Sure. So if they use a computer, just Google my name, Daniel, D. A. N. I. L. Aldrich, A-L-D-R-I-C-H, I've got a website there, a few different ones actually, some products on YouTube as well. My email address is there along with a webpage and Twitter. I'm uh, happy to engage people as an organization or community. I give a lot of talks. I'm happy to do so. To me, this is a really critical part about my job, right, which is just doing the research and what makes communities resilient, but encouraging other communities to learn from those best lessons.
0: Awesome. And then here's the toughest question of the day. What book or books or publications do you recommend to people who are interested in this topic? Yeah, so I would, of course, plug my own book.
1: It's called Building Resilience, uh, published in 2012 by the University of Chicago Press. Um, there's great work by Emily Chamley-Wright, as well, C-H-A-M-L-E-E-W-R-I-G-H-T. Chamley-Wright does great work on this stuff. Um, Muir Woods, M-U-I-R-W-O-O-D-S, does some great work as well. Um, there's also work by people like Rob Olshansky at Chicago. There's a nice cadre of, sco- of scholars, I think, doing really strong work on this idea of social infrastructure as a form of resilience.
0: That's awesome. Is there anything else you'd like to say to the emergency managers of, uh, that are listening to Ian Weekly before we let you go? Yeah, I think you, know, you guys are
1: really critical you know, all the work that you're doing, preparation work, you know, all of the, co- the collaboration you're doing, building those ties across organizations. You know, at the end of the day, just you know, keep recognizing that what you're doing, hopefully, is building these ties and do everything you can to make sure that in the communities where you work, you have that trust, you have that cohesion, you have the sense of community.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for your time today, and i uh, love to have you back sometime. I'm happy to do so, Ted, thank you so much. This is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at